Today, let's rummage around some thoughts about an experience nearer and farther than death. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. start out explaining what we're talking about today by giving a little background about me. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm using my experience only because I know it, it's mine, not because it's distinct from anyone else's. I think most people probably went through something similar, but it, it, it helps me to process why some people just tick differently, uh, seem to think think about and interact with the world differently. And I mean the people when you look across the way at them, you just don't understand. Uh, And I don't mean politically. I don't mean anything like that. I just mean in the experience of our faith, our religion, uh, the way we uh, practice uh, even sports and all those kinds of things. It's it's, It's just an interesting division between people. And my experience that made me aware of this uh, was looking back, you know, when I became a young adult, looking back on my childhood and my youth, in most of my childhood, I would say, I don't know that ever, I, I don't know how other people would characterize it. Again, I'm, I'm picking out the parts of my childhood that I remember. But in my experience, I was the cool, calm, rational little kid. Uh, I just was not... Uh, overtly emotional about anything. I mean, I I had the same emotional experience as everybody else has that you have to have, but I just wasn't governed by that. And so for me, sitting in a classroom and taking tests and things like that was joy. Uh, Every time we had standardized tests at the elementary school I attended, that that was the best day of the year. There was no homework. There was nothing to do afterwards. And it was just fun. It was like playing games or completing puzzles all day long. And it was just glorious. I loved things like that. And and it was the same with, you know, when I was in uh, uh, my math classes, I'm thinking of really at the end of my time uh, as a child, you know, so to speak. So about sixth or seventh grade, I remember sitting in a particular math class and realizing that everybody else, the teacher had left for something or another. They were going to be gone for a while Uh, But she'd left us with homework, you know, for the next day. And we had about 30 minutes in class. Well, I mean, I don't know how many minutes we had. We had some minutes in class. For me, it's automatic. Do all your homework. Just get it all done. Why not have it all done before class is over? I never took homework home because I always got it done during class, either while the teacher was up there yammering on about things that people should have been able to read in the book anyway, or Uh, because everybody else in the class was playing games with each other or doing stuff with each other, and I was just sitting there doing my homework. I loved that. That's just kind of how I lived. And I I think, you know, when I made choices about what I wanted to do or didn't want to do or whatever, they were fairly 
And I'm not, I don't mean this as a pat on the back. I mean, it's sort of like a detached, weird little extra kid over there in the corner, rational kind of kid. You know, that was, that was the thing that probably dominated my way of making decisions when I was a little kid. When I became uh, a young adult, a young person, however you want to describe it, I was 16 years old. I started driving. I ended up being invited to this other church and, and I went because I was able to drive and I got wrapped up in the most exhilarating, exciting, I mean, transformative experience that I've probably ever had in my life during those few years uh, at, you know, and I've mentioned this before, at a fundamental, it was a fundamental Baptist church, an independent fundamental Baptist church. And I mean, the preaching was invigorating. I didn't know then, but as I look back on it now, heavily influenced by Pentecostalism and uh, the sense of response during the worship. And it was everything short of the preacher running around the room waving his handkerchief. Uh, and those of you who know what I'm talking about know that actually happens, right? So this didn't that didn't happen at my church, but everything short of that did. All the sweat, all the throwing off your coat, all the yelling and responsive audience and the amens and the invitation just packed every single time. And, you know, it was, it was fun. I mean, it was fun and it was motivating and it was compelling and it did transform my thinking about God and my interactions with him from what I had experienced as a child in the church I grew up in, which looking back on, I am so thankful for. They grounded me so well before I got to this other church. But I mean, in that church, for me, the sermons were great. I loved them because I loved the pastor and respected him, and they were intelligent. They made sense to me, and I I could respond. And I remember making the decision to trust Christ as my Savior when I was nine years old and then talking to the pastor. I remember the illustrations that he gave about baptism and pictures of the empty tomb and Jesus coming out of it, and that's like us coming out of the water. And I remember all the explanation and the teaching that went with it, and it was all rational. And in all of that, and I i mean, I was doing, I did things, presenting things in classes and, you know, the kind of public speaking type stuff because it was just a good way to exercise the things I thought I was good at. This is before I moved over to this enthusiastic church that I joined. But I just didn't give my whole heart to the enterprise. I didn't I didn't absorb myself in the meaning of it. And when I turned 16 and started attending this other church, man, I you know, I I knew I was supposed to be a uh, I was called to ministry when I was 13 years old. But I didn't do it. I didn't commit myself to it. But at this other church, within just a few weeks, I, at 16 years old, committed myself to ministry for the rest of my life. Something got a hold of me, right, that just didn't uh, break through the shell that I had up uh, when I was younger. That was the enthusiastic side of my experience when I was growing up. And in some ways, I still see that bifurcation, that division between the more rational and so on on one side and the more enthusiastic and experiential on the other side, even in terms of like like now, you know, I'm the president at Criswell College, so higher education and ministry education is important to me. And so on one side, there's this really scholarly, you know, approach to ministry training, theological education, a seminary is the seedbed, literally, that's where the word seminary comes from. 
a seedbed for ideas and thinking about God and deep concepts of the blah, blah, blah. And on the positive side, we complement that by saying, oh, man, look what a scholarly endeavor. The greatest pastors from the early colonies were the best scholars in their entire community. So scholarship, and I think it's a really positive thing. I have nothing negative to say about it, except what everyone else negative says about it. When, when people look at that and they look at, oh, I'm going to a seminary. Well, you know, the joke, I mean, the, the casual common pun joke is, well, he went to cemetery, you know, and got his, oh, I mean, seminary. That's the joke that everyone tells because, or uh, they will, and you, you can hear why, because I don't have to finish that sentence, but also uh, the other way people will insult the scholarly approach to ministry preparation is by saying, well, he's got a lot of book learning, uh, <laughs> which is just so appropriate in so many ways. Anyway, he's got a lot of book learning, you know, but that means basically, but he can't tie his own shoes, that kind of idea. So it's too ethereal, you know, so scholarship's great, but it's just book learning. And then you have an approach to ministry training that's entirely applied. Uh, it is all about just getting out and doing it and getting into contexts where you can experience it. And this is true even in some higher ed institutions of ministry training, that the focus is on that. Not that they don't do the other, just like we are focused on a scholarly approach to preparing people for ministry. But we also have a really heavy emphasis on ministry experience, so people doing stuff. But when push comes to shove, we're first an institution of higher ed, and so scholarship's first. In that same way, I can say on the other side, there are plenty of people who are focused first and foremost on applying ministry, on putting people in situations where they can learn ministry by doing it. You get into the baptistry and baptize some people and so on. And, and, all, and even the classroom or the chapel services are really built around the experiential enterprise uh, and developing that aspect of the person's ability to follow in ministry and so on. So the applied focus and there's a really great side to that because you experience the reality of what happens when you do ministry, obviously. On the negative side, when people criticize it, they criticize it by saying, well, it's irrational or it's, oh, look at all that personality-based stuff they're doing. If they just didn't have that person at the front of it, nobody would even go there. They just want to be like the big celebrity they're trying to follow. Or look at how emotional and experiential and temporary and passing and blah, blah, blah. So on one side, you criticize it for book learning. On the other side, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you get the idea. So, so this, is, this is what I want to do. I want to look at one side of that today. And I'm not, I'm not promising I'm ever going to look at the other side. The one side has confronted me in some way, sort of, you know, sort of like uh, the old VeggieTales uh, show where they're going to Nineveh and they're slapping people in the face with a fish. It's sort of like that. This thing has been slapping me in the face with a fish, uh, for a good while now, and I've wanted to talk about it, but I've kind of been resistant because I don't, I don't, I don't often like to just. You're not going to believe this, but I don't often like to just rummage around my own ideas about things. Usually, I have a a, a pretty in depth basis for the things I'm talking about, and actually, I have given some time to this enough to give a basis to it too. But anyway, the point is, uh, sometimes. So let me let me uh, divide it in this way to make clearer the distinction. Sometimes what we I think mistakenly do, by the way. Sometimes we equate the more scholarly side 
with people who are more attracted to the ethereal, to transcendent ideas. And then alternatively, on the opposite half, we up, we say, oh, you know, the people who are on the applied side, the people who are down there, you know, maybe speak, maybe even speaking in tongues, you know, they're more attached to the imminent, uh, to the experiential, the meat on the bones things in the world. But I, I do think that way of equating being more scholarly or being more applied to the more ethereal or to the more imminent, the more, you know, the more approachable, the more uh, in this world kind of stuff on the, on the, uh, uh, on the uh, applied side, I think that would be a mistake. Uh, I think uh, the reality of the bifurcation I'm talking about, the divide between the way people think about things and experience things, is really only about, you know, on the one side, a focus on what I'll refer to as the transcendent, maybe the sacred, the holy, uh, the things that are different from the way this world is, just different, and you don't experience them in this world directly. It just doesn't happen. And on the other side, sort of the, and the, the word mundane is sort of like an insult in the way we use it, but I don't mean it as an insult. The mundane, meaning the things that we do every day, the things that are sometimes transformative to life because we do them every day, but the things that are imminent in the theological term the things that are just every day, uh, the things that are, uh, you know, workaday kind of things. That, that The focus on one side or the other of that, the sacred or the mundane, the transcendent or the imminent, the holy or the everyday, I think is a better way to divide this. And there are lots of people I know who are, like me, much more committed to the practice of living out the mundane, imminent, everyday practice of even Christianity, you know, of applying it specifically. Here's my faith. It's in the fact that I wake up every day and do the same thing. Here's my faith, the fact that I, you know, just these regular everyday practices, that kind of thing. And ne'er or rarely to be touched by the transcendent, uh, the holy experiences, the sacred moments that are so distinct in life. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up, the reason I want to talk about it, is because the longer I've been around the faith, and I guess, you know, I've been a believer for 51 years now, and I've been in church and in faith for my whole life, never had a time when I wasn't being taken to church by my family and didn't think about God or stuff like that. So the longer I've been around the faith, the more consistently I've seen the difference between a faith that's worked out exactly the same way skepticism is worked out. And it's not the same as skepticism by any stretch of the imagination. Faith is faith. And skepticism is not, you know, so I'm not, this is not even being harsh about it or critical. But a, but there is on one side a faith that's worked out exactly the same way you would work out anything else that you commit yourself to, uh, the same way a skepticism would be worked out. And it might be rational, that way of working it out might be intellectual, you know, it might be practical, it might be relational, it could be any of those ways, but what you come to is just a conclusion that's based on the regular everyday experiences of life. Yeah, I mean, you know, my family told me that I was supposed to be a Christian, so I became a Christian, I got baptized, and I've had a commitment to Christ since then. I've heard a lot of testimonies like that, and they're very sincere and very meaningful. I'm not, I'm not attacking them at all. What I want to do is look at the other half of it, though. 
the kind of faith that's informed by encounters with the ineffable or the holy or the inexplicable or the transcendent. And those encounters can come in so many different ways. And for those who experience those kinds of encounters regularly, I think they would point out the same kinds of things that I, where I have experienced them in prayer or meditation or contemplation under a night sky or in the reading of scripture, an encounter with conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes in any of those moments. But it is, you know, it is more than just reading the words in scripture. It's more than just coming up with creating or repeating a prayer. It's more than just sitting silently and being able to clear your mind of the busyness of the day. It's in all of those contexts or any of those contexts or a different one, suddenly finding yourself overwhelmed by the awareness of God's presence or his love or his grace or his care or even his judgment. That encounter, that reality sets apart a kind of faith uh, that some people have from the faith that they had, legitimate faith, real faith, that they had before that encounter with the transcendent. And I'm not, I'm not bringing this up as a sales pitch for ecstatic experiences. That's, that's not the goal. That's not the purpose. But there is a purpose in it of saying, you know, may, sometimes I think we actually have a fence up, a wall. It's sort of like a person who's been wounded emotionally you know, can put up defenses, and uh, they just won't let anyone in uh, to hurt them again, you know, that kind of thing. There's something of that, and I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why, but I've been there. So, I'm, I mean, I, I can talk about this because I've been this person. There are some times that we put up a wall against any possibility of getting sucked into an ecstatic experience, and we have a sense of warning against them. And some of the parts of the warning are legitimate because you can get caught up in ecstatic experiences that are not good. No doubt about that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the way we set up this warning, uh, it come, so it, again, in my experience, it came in a couple of different forms. Uh, one of the caveats was, you know, it's sort of like the expression, the higher the climb, the greater the fall. You know, the higher they are, the, the harder the fall, that, that kind of expression that I've heard since I was a little kid as well. I have no idea where the expression originates. It's pretty simple to figure out, though. Uh, that, 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 so I think that expression, that cliche, is perfect as a warning against the ambitious. Makes perfect sense. I mean, you're saying... You know, don't don't set your sights too high, buddy, because you don't realize how hard the fall is when you try to climb that high. I mean, that's a reasonable warning. It's not a reason not to do it because, of course, you know, things have risks. And the greater the possibilities, the greater the risks. Obviously, that goes hand in hand. And yet still, it's a reasonable warning. Well, you realize the dangers that go with that. I mean, you're going to take a long shot at this. It may not work out. Okay, fine. That's all good. But we do the same thing when we apply it to these kinds of encounters with the transcendent. We, we sort of uh, describe, well, I mean, I'll give you more details about it. I'll give you more examples uh, you know, later when we're talking about it. 
But we sort of say to people, oh, if you base your faith on that kind of experience, you know, it can't stay there forever. The law of diminishing returns. I heard those very terms as if it were a drug you were taking. Well, you know, you're going you're gonna to think your faith is based on being able to have that kind of experience, and then you're, gonna, you're not going to have your faith anymore. I understand that fear. I've made that argument. I'm not sure it applies to this in the same way it applies to the ambition that a person has in the regular parts of life, you know, the daily mundane experiences of life. And in my more, le- my more legalistic days, again, the times when I was even more judgmental than I still am now and wish I weren't, but I still am, hard to get it off, hard to get rid of all of it. Stop judging me. Anyway, the point is, in my more legalistic days, the idea that uh, a religion, you know, would be based on experience or passion uh, was equivalent to the idea that that religion would be very short-lived, that that faith would be very temporary because you just couldn't ground a solid faith on something like that, you know, as if it needed to be based on bread, not cake kind of idea. So, uh, I, so here's, the, here's the thing. Transcendence, and I'm using that to describe those. So, you know, a thing that's transcendent, you wouldn't encounter because it's not accessible to us. It's too remote. It's uh, severed from the mundane world, the day, the, the world we live in, right? And yet I'm using the word transcendence to describe these kinds of experiences because we, and we all do this, we, we use the word for this to make the point that I was transported out of this mundane world and brought somehow miraculously into contact with a part of the world that I didn't know existed before. It was transcendent to my everyday experience. And so that's what I mean when I'm describing a transcendent sort of imposition on our everyday experience. And the reality is we encounter these all the time in a variety of different ways. And so I can, and, and, and what I, you know, what, what I see people do sometimes is isolate themselves from it. Like, oh, I, I don't want to get caught up in that. I, I, I don't want to don't don't be that emotional kind of person. I don't want to be driven by that kind of aesthetic experience or something like that. And so I'll use that as the first example of what I'm talking about, these impositions on everyday life, not, not, even, not having anything to do with faith. They don't have to have anything to do with faith, not directly. Uh, experiences where transcendence sort of imposes itself on us. And I know that would mean it's imminent. I get that. Again, this is the sort of paradox of the conversation about transcendence and imminence. doesn't make any sense to talk about transcendence at all. You end up with a, a whole, uh, you know, uh, apophatic theology, a, a theology where you can't speak anything. You just sit in utter silence. And if you have a thought, you know, it's distracting you from the reality of God that you're encountering, which is indescribable and so on. I get that, but I don't think that limitation can persist for a believer since we have a revelation of the almighty God who is transcendent and yet chose to impose himself on the world, chose to erupt into the world. So with all that said, those eruptions come in other forms as well. There are, there are things in life awaken us to the reality that there's something beyond the everyday mundaneness of even a beautiful life, even a life perfectly well lived. There are these impositions on that that come in the form, for instance, of art. And in, and in art, I'm going to pick out music because it's the purest 
uh, kind of art that we can talk about. And when I say purist, I mean it doesn't depend on a representation of something else in the way we normally think about it. Usually when we think of visual art, we're painting something. And how much it looks like that thing is part of its worth to us. You know, it doesn't even look like her. Well, I don't know. I don't want that piece of art. You know, that kind of stuff. So, so getting around all of those arguments and debates, and yeah, I know what expressionism is, and I love it, and all the blah, blah, blah. None of that is what I want to talk about. So to avoid that, I'm just going to go straight to music, this sort of purely abstract form of art. You can make it representational, you know, where a piece of music is imitating the sounds of a cannon in Tchaikovsky or something, or Peter and the Wolf or whatever. You can make it, you know, program music where there's some script that goes along with it. But, but, but that's not the music. The music is the abstract part. And there is a beauty in music. And I know it's enculturated. I, I know that. That's fine. I'm not saying it's universal that everybody likes the same kind of music or follows the same kind of, or even has the same kind of tonic scale or whatever. I'm just saying music has an abstractness to it that allows us to talk about the experience without having to figure out why it's representing this or that. And some people have sort of a naive view of music, and naive is not meant to be insulting. It's meant to say a sort of simple view of music that says, well, obviously this kind of music is joyful because it makes me feel joyful. But that, you know, that's just on how you encounter it and how you respond to it. And it wouldn't make sense, by the way, if when we really want to hear a dirge, for instance, and we find a dirge to be beautiful, something written by a composer in the throes of lamentation, and yet we find it beautiful, and we find it compelling, and we want to experience it. Not like we want to experience death or suffering, but we want to experience somehow the beauty that emerged from this soul that had encountered those sorrows. And so, anyway, in all of that abstractness, I want to bring up music, not lyrics, not poetry, just music in this case, the music itself, right? And so when you think about music, it's really hard to figure out what the meaning of music is. I, I've talked about this. When, I, when we were on the radio for years and years, I talked about this, the meaning of music and how to understand it because I'd written a paper on it and you know, we did a, semi, a, a class when I was in my PhD program on uh, musical aesthetics. Had a great professor for that, by the way, and everything. So anyway... As, as you think about the meaning of music, it's really hard to figure out exactly where the meaning lies, you know? So it's not true that because you have huge intervals, pitch intervals uh, between notes that you have a joyful expression. It's not true that minor always indicates sorrow or something like that. I know we sort of assume those things are the case, but it's, not, it's just not the case. As it turns out, if you study music long enough, you, you know this is, is not the case. So where on earth does music find its meaning? Because you don't just sit sit and listen to music and it's and it's got nothing. It has no message. That's not true. Uh, when you listen to music, you know it says something to you. You know it does something to you. And it's more than sitting in a vibrating chair, you know, and getting a massage. There's something different about what music does. It stirs things, stimulates things, turns on parts of the brain. I know the anatomical side of that. Uh, from music, because of a book I read not too long ago. It's fascinating, but it doesn't explain the internal, the soulish experience that we have in the presence of beautiful music. And I mean beautiful music from, uh, you know, some from some hip-hop down to some classical uh, forms of music. Uh, my sons, who are, you know, they make rock music. 
uh, of different kinds. They make beautiful music, and it's uh, compelling. I'm uh, driven to the aesthetic experience when I hear their music. And so, you know, why is that? What, where, where's the message in music? Where's the meaning in music? How do you, how do you explain what music does? And I don't know where all of that is, obviously. No one, I think, has a perfect explanation of what all of that is. But I will say what one part of it is. I mean, one part of it is that when you're listening to music, and this is the music that is appealing uh, to me and aesthetic in my experience, uh, it has intentionality to it. It's being done on purpose. And not just lightly, but I mean it is effused with purpose. Like every note is where it's supposed to be. The rhythms are where they're supposed to be. And the genius of some music that leaves us confused about why they would have had that rhythm or why they would have changed that or why they would have ended with dissonance or, you know, all of that stuff that we complain about is also still part of the evidence that there is purpose in everything that's happening in the music. And it's so orderly, so... And again, I'm not saying some music doesn't sound frenetic or chaotic. I'm saying that's part of the purpose in that music. But it is so different than the randomness, apparent randomness, of most of the rest of our lives. You know, here's the, here's the orchestra. Every person knows what they're supposed to do, even if what they're supposed to do is create on their own in the process of counterdicting what some other part of the orchestra is doing. I, what, you know, there are some very confusing forms of music out there. I get that. But they're so intentional. They're deliberate. They're instructive. They provide uh, a, an intentionality to every part of what's going on in that piece of music. And I think the more intentional every part is, the more replete with intentionality every part of music is, the more meaningful, the more beautiful, the more attractive it is at least in my experience of it, in my aesthetic experience in the presence of music. And so what I'm being brought to encounter is something that's different from this mundane world, something that's not like what I experience every day here. Because what I experience every day here is accidents and confusion and people who are acting against each other. And what I experience in music is something where there's literally the word harmony where there is a melody that was intended to be communicated. And it is. And it's done in a way that says to me, they're going to do, they know how to do, they've learned how to do what they're supposed to, and everything is in its place, that kind of statement. Just that statement, everything is in its place, should tell you why the encounter with transcendence can come with an encounter with beautiful music. And it, do, do I think every piece of music has to have in it somewhere a representation of the gospel? No, I mean, part of the representation of the gospel that's just inherently present in us is when we see that we had a desire to be in the presence of something that did make sense, something that was intentional, something where everything was in its place and was harmonious. That encounter with the transcendence, transcendent can be beautiful. And, you know, it's it's weird when you're around people. So I'm saying me. This is of me. I'm going to say this. It's weird when I'm around people who are so caught up in that kind of encounter with the transcendence of music. You know what I'm talking about? They got, like the headphones on, their eyes are closed, and they're totally focused. And it's, it's like the rest of the world ceases to exist. It's like, wow, you're weird. Why don't, why don't you join the real world? But 
then again, you think about it. Why not join the real world? Really? I mean, have you seen the real world? My point is that there's something in that transcendent encounter that's saying to a soul, there's, there's a different way to be than the way the world happens to be. The world's like this, but, but don't you wish there was something different about it? Why do you wish that? Where, where does that longing come from? It's the same thing, and I'll, I'll put this, I'll, I'll keep it in the context of music, but not because it's about music, but because it's an easy example of this one. The sense of belonging that we have when we're part of a community, not just being in a society, not just functioning in an economy, you know, just having price and wage and all those things that go with being part of a society, but I mean the sense of belonging. I'm one of you. I'm, I'm one of these people, and, oh, here's my group. Here are my people. You know, here's my experience with them. And an easy example of this is one that I've avoided. I, I don't like this one. I, and, I, and I'm not saying that in a good way. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sort of rebuffing my own nature by saying these things about it. But, you know, this is what's experienced at a lot of sporting events, but I'll pick a musical concert instead. I've, I've only been to one you know, I say this, I've only been to one concert. I've been to a bunch of concerts, if you mean going to an auditorium where quartets are singing or something like that. It's a completely different experience, right? But I mean a rock concert, you know, a concert where there's a, a celebrity on stage that people are just insane about, right? So when I was in, I don't know, eighth, ninth, tenth, ninth grade, I think I was 15 years old, I went to a, a Queen concert. I mean, you know, whatever, I don't, whatever you think about it. Oh man, it was, it was an event. I mean, it was an amazing event Uh, and no, I did not partake. Yes. People were passing things around. Uh, and I, but I would not have, I mean, I was that kid. This was still back in my rational days, you know, but that experience, you know, was unique. I didn't, I didn't even care about the crowd that was around me, but I could hear the eruption of support and belonging, you know, that went with being a part of, of that concert venue. And people do it all the time. I mean, the standing and the cheering and the lights going and the waving of things and whatever. And everybody's got to be a part of, what is, what is the Taylor Swift thing? That, what, are, what are people called? The Swifties? Yeah, they're Swifties or, yeah, there's, I thought it was some nation or something. You know, Anyway, whatever. Whatever they're called, to be a part of that is just, you know, there's a sense of belonging that goes with it. And that sense of belonging of being in a group of being not just a loose group, but being but belonging to that group, being a part of that little community. And whether it's, uh, you know, 10 people who are running around or 10,000 people who are at one of these concerts, that sense of belonging uh, matters to people. They love to paint their faces and get out there and cheer for the Cowboys because they're, and I do too, I don't paint my face. I've never been to a game, by the way. Uh, but I watch them on TV, and I know it's a big deal to be able to text back and forth with a with one of my kids and say, "Ah, oh, did you see that play? You know, did you know what was happening?" There's there's a sense of belonging there that says we don't want to just be alone. You know, we want something more than the regular, mundane, day to day experience that we have in life. And even with reason, by the way, I'll say the same thing happens. Uh, in, uh, in, you know, with people who talk about being rationalistic, you can have rational encounters with the transcendent. Uh, and I've, I, I know lots of people who've had these kinds of experiences. 
you know, grasping how ubiquitous pie is. Not pie like apple pie. You know what I mean? Pie, like 3.141592, whatever. That, you know, encountering where it is in circles and in trigonometry and in all of these calculations that take place and in all of these ratios that are just miraculously drawn back to this one number and then realizing it's not ubiquitous by accident. It's not like some random constant that happens to keep showing up, but how it fits together or how imaginary numbers can actually be useful or how limits can bring solutions to impossible problems in calculus or any of those things. When you encounter those things, there is something beautiful about it. That's different. That's on the artistic side. That's the aesthetic experience. But I mean literally in terms of reason. In fact, we have, we have one listener who wrote a book on some of this, on some of these encounters with rational realities that sort of confront you with something transcendent that make you realize there's something better in, in the universe, that there's something better outside of the universe is what I really mean to say. When you encounter that, even just purely rationally in, in terms of math, you say, there's something too great about this to be contained in engineering. And that's not an insult to engineering. Engineering is incredibly powerful, applied math and all the other stuff that goes with it. I'm just saying that encounter with the transcendent can come even from something as rational as, as math or philosophy, my encounter with the categorical imperative or the ontological argument. After years of rummaging around in the ontological argument, trying to figure it out, we'll have to talk about it another day. I think we have talked about it on an episode before. I mean, when you, when you, when you are confronted by it, by the reality of it, and by the inescapable nature of it, it does bring you to your knees to say, oh, oh, my soul. It's, it's as if God really does pull back the curtain sometimes and say, you're, you're not down there alone. I've given you plenty of room to see the truth about me. Uh, the same thing with, and, and by the way, I, it's, not, it's not that you're having an aesthetic experience in those moments. You know, because the aesthetic experience is where we normally encounter the transcendent in art and things like that, it feels when we have these rational encounters also like being in the presence of a great work of art. So we, we will, you know, sort of dumb it down, so to speak, I think it's just painting with too broad a stroke is really all that amounts to by describing it as an aesthetic, rational experience. But it's not aesthetic. Uh, it is an experience with something more eternal, something, uh, m- yeah, I mean, that's the right way to say it, even though eternal is an absolute term, something more eternal than the things we normally encounter day to day. And again, I, you know, I've had friends who, I think were, uh, they were resistant to this idea. So I'll, I'll give you a different analogy to get to the point here to draw to, toward the conclusion. I mean, all the time, we always do this when we're playing a sport. So I played racquetball and volleyball when I was, you know, when I was young, uh, a lot. And I would play with people who were a lot better athletes than I was. And I've just never been a great athlete. I love to play and I can do some things. I'm not like being self, uh, you know, facing here. Just, just saying. They were a lot better than I was. They played high school sports. Some of them played college sports, and they were just tremendous at it. And when they would play somebody who was less uh, qualified than they were, me, uh, they would play down to my level. 
And they were so insulted when I would say that they were doing that. They would be like, no, I play at the same level all the time. But that's never true. Uh, We always play to the level of our competition because when you have to play at your dead level best, you're taking risks and you're trying things that might not have worked otherwise and you miss some shots that you had to hit right on the line, you know, things like that that you would never do if you were playing somebody and you would dominate somebody by staying in the safe zone and playing where you know you can make the shot and you don't need to take those risks. And so when you're playing someone at your level of competition, you play safe and it is kind of boring. You know, I mean, those of us who've played somebody who's not as good at some sport, even if it's just because they don't have as much experience, there's just not the same challenge. You don't have to try as hard. And when you're playing somebody better than you, there's a huge risk of embarrassment or worse, you know, whatever. Injury is the, is the worst that I have in mind. But it's also an adventure, you know. And I remember when the Cowboys were, well, I don't know, I think they were 0 and 8. Oh, they were. They were 0 and 8 at this point in the season. I remember I made a note for myself here. Uh, then when they played the when they played the Redskins in 1989, we were 0 and 8. This was the first year of uh, Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones taking ownership of the Cowboys and all that. And uh, in the second matchup between the Cowboys and the Redskins, I remember the Cowboys came out just slinging everything. You know, they were just, be they, they didn't care if they were taking a risk. They were 0-8. And, and the Redskins were having a decent season. They weren't having, I don't think it was a winning season, but they were close to a winning season. And the Cowboys beat them. I mean, they spanked them. Uh, because they just took every risk. They got out there and and just tried it. And that's the that's the point I want to make, that being pushed over the edge of what we're used to or comfortable with in that way. You know, an 0-8 team going to face somebody who's dominated them earlier in the season already. Uh, and yet, take take the risks. Jump out there. Climb the ladder. Uh, see what happens. Yeah, you might fall, but I mean, where you are right now probably isn't good enough. That's what I'm talking about in the sports, you know, analogy that I was giving. Well, in scripture, think about how many times, how important it is when experience pushes us up to or over the edge of the mundaneness that we're used to. Jacob's ladder at Bethel or wrestling with the angel at Peniel, or Moses at the burning bush, or forget those kinds of experiences, just David's times when he's praying or singing, writing psalms in a cot somewhere in the wilderness. Jeremiah trapped in a pit producing a lamentation. Thomas seeing Jesus' wounds and falling down to worship him. Peter stepping out on a sea. Or being confronted by the crowing of a rooster or standing on a boat and seeing Jesus on the shore or Stephen being stoned and seeing Jesus. There is a reason, and I will, you know, not be able to cover all of this, but I'll I'll cover it quickly and just make the point. There is a reason that transcendence is important to, essential to a fuller faith. I mean, it's part of what faith is. And by fuller, I mean a more mature faith. And it is, you know, there's an expression that we use about evangelism. You know, evangelism isn't isn't caught. I mean, it isn't taught, it's caught. You know that? can't. It's not taught, it's caught. 
that idea is you, you have to experience it. You have to be with somebody. And it's the same thing we say about preaching or prayer or faith in general. You can't just give words to it and somebody understands it. And they just sort of subsume into it. It's not like that. And it's why, by the way, the central book of worship in Scripture is a book of poetry. Poetry isn't prose. You can never, and I love analyzing poetry and explaining it to people, but you cannot, in the explanation, capture what makes the poem a poem because it is the poem itself and its beauty, the aesthetic experience of encountering not just the message, but actually the words themselves in the way they're given, the song of those words and the way they interact with your soul that makes poetry what it is and so on. I mean, it's my take on it, but you get the point. And so what I think we're doing sometimes by avoiding having more transcendent experiences of any kind uh, is robbing ourselves of encounters with God. And there are a couple of ways that we do that. I mean, one of the ways is if we just settle for the instantiations of transcendence like I've been talking about them. You know, it's, it's like somebody uh, pursuing sex but not intimacy or somebody choosing intoxication because you can certainly have a transcendent experience through intoxication, but choosing that over the ineffability of actually encountering God or choosing hallucinations over an actual vision or having, uh, you know, look, choosing pain instead of the purpose that should be associated with the suffering that we go through. I mean, it's like a, a trope in movies now uh, when people are seeking abuse or seeing pain as a, you know, a sense of still being alive. And there are lots of, there's lots of language that's associated with that. In, and in reality, the, you know, the Lise Meitner, I've given a quotation from her before, the physicist who helped with the uh, development of the atomic bomb and so on, not good, bad, or indifferent. That's just who she is. She's that prominent a physicist who said life need not be easy. She was a Jewish uh, physicist, you know, went through the, you know, with her family and everybody else, the meaning of the Holocaust. Life need not be easy, provided only that it is not empty. The, 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 The suffering part, the not easy part, is not what makes it full. It's the purpose part that makes it full. That's the encounter that matters. Uh, it is, you know, by, so, uh, so, so one way that we rob ourselves of encounters with God is by just settling for the transcendence that we've encountered in the world, thinking that music is enough, thinking that art is enough, thinking that sex is enough, thinking that drugs are enough, thinking that whatever it is, is enough. And, and again, I'm not even insulting those things, even though obviously some of them are self-destructive in one way or another. I'm simply saying people encounter transcendence in a hundred different ways in the world. And yet the reality of that transcendence and what it should appeal, uh, what it should draw us to is beyond even that, even those encounters in this world. And so by so that's one way. And the other way we rob ourselves of encounters with God is by rejecting or avoiding all of those divergent forms of transcendence that we encounter in this world. We like for things to be comprehensible. We like for things to be comprehended by us. But that's the last thing in the world we need when what we really need is to encounter a God who can't be comprehended by us. So that's my invitation. My invitation and my reminder to myself 
is to welcome when God pushes us over the edge of the plateau where we were so comfortable. And it may take finding yourself or losing yourself in a situation you can't contain or explain for you to encounter the God you can't contain or explain either. When our life takes us here, may our faith take us there. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.